0: Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. First Corinthians 15, we should be ready to go. Turn there. It's good to see everyone. Uh, It's a little dreary out there. Okay, some rain, overcast, Uh, but, uh, you know, usually what that looks like is that we're kind of sleepy, we get a little sleepy, and um, we want to pray against that. So, let's be alive this morning, let's be prepared uh, to hear from God's Word. We are going to be in verses 29 through 34, up to this point in chapter 15, just by way of recap, we have been talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we remember that In Corinth, there was a bit of controversy about whether or not that the resurrection of Christ would be extended to the living saints, the saints in Corinth, and those saints that had died in that space between Christ's resurrection and this moment, which is, uh, you know, approximately uh, the late 50s uh, uh, AD, okay, is where we're at. And so the people of the church were concerned, you know, and we, we find them in this book going about doing religious activity, you know, behaving the way that they think Christians should. And yet in their hearts and in the conversations between the congregates and the church, there was, there was concern that there would be no resurrection for them when they died, which affects everything. I mean, what we're coming to find uh, from studying this is that that without the resurrection of Christ, we are most miserable, right? We are a miserable people, you know, essentially living a religious life that's absent of any true joy or excitement or anticipation. Our last sermon was called Our Future Hope. We talked about what it looks like to have a hope in the future resurrection. We talked about the timeline of how things are going to unfold based on what the scriptures tell us. But we have a promised resurrection of our body. And one day, uh, those of us who've put our faith in Jesus Christ will one day spend eternity with God in heaven. And that is the hope that we have in our hearts, is that one day we get to see him. You know, we talked about how, you know, a lot of us have had loved ones who we care for very deeply uh, that have passed away. And uh, what greater hope is there to know that one day we'll see them again? You know, it's a a very precious thing. So Christ defeated death. Amen? Amen. And one day he will raise our dead bodies from the grave to be made new and reign with him for eternity. Romans 6, 7 says this, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, today, before we get into our text, I just want to point out that sometimes you come to a portion of Scripture as a pastor or as a Bible student, that you'd like to skip over, okay? And that's where we find ourselves today. <laughs> is it a portion of Scripture that would be much more convenient for me to simply skip over? But, uh, but here's the deal. Taking time to cover tricky passages and to understand them according to what Scripture says is absolutely critical for this, this, uh, this group of people that we call Kaya. And um, the reason that we chose 1 Corinthians to begin with is because I knew it was riddled with stuff like this, that it was full of very difficult passages, very difficult con- concepts that the young people in our ministry need to understand for themselves. I, had, um, uh, I don't have time to explain this, but Micah Sanders showed up to my house yesterday at about 7 o'clock with a bag full of cheeseburgers, okay? Apparently, they had some leftover cheeseburgers, and they thought, what the heck? <laughs> I, I, I really appreciate it. The dinner that Eva cooked, uh, none of the kids wanted it. As soon as the cheeseburgers showed up, they were, they were about that. But, but Mike and I took some time to, to sit on the, on the front porch. In fact, um, Michael, wherever you're at, Michael is apparently the chef. Everybody's raving about Michael's cooking, so... Um, hey, thank you. Um, but Mike and I were talking and he was, he was describing, we we're having a conversation about how, uh, what we've been studying about the, the gifts of the Spirit and how we understand, um, you know, the, the idea of the gifts of the Spirit and how uh, they, they do not continue past the apostles, right, um, how all of that that we got into over several weeks, uh, that's helped him. The, understanding the cessation of gifts, gifts has helped him and other men in the ministry contend for what the Scripture says. And now they can have conversations with other people um, that they need to have, and they don't have to come and find me to do it, right? And that's the blessing of studying difficult things is that you're growing in knowledge, and in faith, you're going out into your community And you are very freely speaking about what God's word says. And so that's why we need tricky passages. And that's why we need this passage today. Um, We need to get equipped. Amen? Amen. Amen? So, as always, we have a question before we start today's sermon. And that's this What does it mean to be religious? What does it mean to be religious? Some of you often are probably called religious by your family members, you know, because you're faithful in attendance to church and maybe because you're involved in ministry. And so maybe you often are referred to as religious. Maybe you perceive yourself to be a religious person. Uh, but this word "religious," the word "religion," um, they they often carry a lot of baggage with them. And we're going to try to uncover that today and talk about what it looks like. What it looks like to be religious. And um, the name of today's sermon is "What Religion Can't Replace," and that's what we're tackling. All right. Is everybody ready? Everybody awake? Okay, if you need a, while I pray, if you need a refill of, uh, of coffee, very quietly get up, go get some more caffeine, and pray, pray with us in your heart, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, what you write to us very plainly in the scriptures, uh, things that you understand, we often confuse in our flesh, and we use man's intellect to decipher uh, and what we do is we often impose ideas onto your text, and then we, we make what was once plain. We make, it, we make it complicated. And so, God, forgive us. Forgive us of our weakness. Uh, forgive us for the wickedness of false teachers. Uh, forgive us for just naivety in general. And we ask that today, as we study your word, that, that all of us we be, would be made less ignorant And all of us would grow more confident in what you're saying to us. And that we would abide by the principles that your scriptures demand. Uh, Studying your word demands that we abide by principles. We have to have consistency in the way that we divide it. That's what you've asked of us. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply with consistency uh, basic principles today to this text. Lord, fill us full of faith and give us a desire to have a relationship with you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read, starting in verse 29. Else, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily.' If after the manner of men I have, uh, if after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageeth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived; evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness, and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. All right, let's start right here with the hardest part. Verse 29 says, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? This passage has left a lot of Bible readers confused for a very long time. Uh, People often read this and they don't know what to make of it. But we have been learning uh, in our Bible studies uh, some basic Bible study principles. One of the wonderful things that we do uh, during the summer is we kind of switch gears away from the Discovery Bible Method, which we use It's more of a communal style of Bible study, uh, to the summertime where we do personal Bible study, and we start learning and, and practicing some Bible study principles that are necessary so that we don't, in our personal quiet time, abuse the text. And so we've been doing that over the last few weeks, and some of you that are in Foundations 3, maybe this summer, or you're going to be taking it here in the fall, you'll spend time with Professor Eric Phillips, and he will be teaching you a basic hermeneutic, which basically just means he's going to be teaching you how to study the Bible, and he'll be talking about principles that are necessary for understanding the Word of God. We all know that there are many people, both well-intentioned and also wicked in their intentions, they take the word of God and they misapply it. And when the Bible is misapplied, we end up believing and doing and behaving in ways that are actually opposite to what the scripture teaches. And so it's important that we under- learn to understand the Bible for ourselves. You know, it's one of the, the tenets of this church that everyone in our congregation learn the word of God at the very same level that our pastors know it. And if not better, we would encourage I mean, it would be wonderful if everyone in this room understood how to study the Bible at an even greater level and had a greater knowledge than even me, right? That's, in, that's important for us, and that's why we go deep in the Word of God. So let's, let's revisit some of these principles, all right? Okay, so if you're, if you're taking notes, this is where you, you want to get some stuff down. Let's talk about this one principle. Principle number one for today is the principle of confirmation. The principle of confirmation. Okay, it should be on the slide. There we are. Okay, the principle of confirmation, which means that that we don't establish a biblical doctrine on a single statement in Scripture. Okay, we don't establish or or affirm a a doctrine of Scripture based on one single passage. Now, there are instances in, in the Bible where there's an exhaustive passage. Where maybe a chapter or two or three is devoted to a concept. For instance, uh, in Romans chapter 9 through 11, uh, we get this exhaustive declaration of how one day Christ will reunite Israel. He will awaken them again to the the fact that the Messiah has come for them, and He will regraft them into the body of Christ. He will graft them back into His church. Now, that's an exhaustive passage, but even there, we can go to other places in Scripture and find Scripture that affirms the concepts that we find in Romans chapter 9-11. through 11. But the one thing we don't want to do is take small portions of Scripture and, and that, that don't give us a whole lot of information and turn them into doctrines. Now, there's a passage in Scripture that kind of teaches us this idea. That's 2 Corinthians 13.1, where it says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. In other words, the more witness to a truth that we have, the more established that it is. And that's true for studying the Bible as well. When we see patterns in Scripture, when we see repetition in Scripture, that's how we build doctrines. So, so here's the deal. No other place in Scripture does this phrase or this idea of baptism for the dead appear. We don't find it anywhere else. And so we aren't going to establish a doctrine based on this one somewhat ambiguous portion or passage. Everyone understand so far? Okay. All right. We're getting somewhere. So we, we, we need to continue on. The principle number two that we're going to talk about today is this principle called the principle of direct statement over question. All right. And if this is feeling real academic today, uh, we'll have have some devotional application here at the end. But you need to know this stuff. Amen? We need to know it. The principle of direct statement over a question. In other words, we don't ever establish a doctrine or affirm a doctrine based on a question in Scripture. Now here in, in, in verse 29, we have two questions that follow each other back to back. Right? And so... Many heresies that exist in our world today are based upon questions and rhetorical devices in Scripture. And they'll, they'll take these, and they'll, they'll take them out, out of their context, of course. And what they'll do is they will draw a conclusion based on a question. Now, a question you, we all understand. You guys remember, like, elementary school English, don't you? Right? Questions are different than statements. They're different things, right? You, you know this, right? Questions are different than statements. So good questions, they, good questions in Scripture, they might provoke thought and they might reveal truth. They might prod you towards truth. They might cause you to sit and to contemplate what is or isn't true. But by their very nature, questions point outward, don't they? Questions point outward to you. So if the Bible asks a question, it's asking it of the reader. It's pointing outward. It's, it's asking you to consider something. But statements point inward towards the text. When a statement is made in Scripture, it's pointing inward, and it's calling you to consider the truths there within. So we can't undermine the context by, by, by taking a question and turning it into a declaration. Does this make sense? Okay. Okay. Principle number three. This is one we talk about quite often, and that's the principle of context itself. Everything we understand about doctrine is established within the framework of the passage, chapter, or book, etc. Right? Everything that we can, can garner or glean about a truth is established or affirmed. By the, by the nature of the passage itself, okay? And so where we're at right now, obviously the context is the, the resurrection. We've been having a conversation about the nature of the resurrection, about, about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and, and how we can hope in it and trust in it and, and put our faith in it and anticipate it for the future, right? And we've been studying a passage, and we've been studying that passage within a chapter, and we've been studying that chapter within a book, and and we've been studying that book within the Pauline epistles, and we've been studying the Pauline epistles within the New Testament, and the New Testament within the context of the whole of Scripture. All of these things must be considered as a whole, right? And when that kind of structure, that framework breaks down, we get in trouble. So never take anything in the Bible out of its context in order to get what you want out of the passage. Some of you are familiar with this statement. You can find this statement in uh, many different uh, wonderful commentaries. And uh, from, you can hear this. I hear this probably most often from Mark Trotter and from Alan Shelby. But they often say, a text without a context is a pretext. It's a pretext. Okay? Okay. A text without a context is a pretext. Now, if you don't know what the word pretext means, pretext is when someone justifies something based upon a concealed agenda, all right? When someone comes to the text with an agenda in mind, I have a, 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 you know, I have my own personal truth. I have my own personal perception. And when I come to the Bible and I read the Bible, I read my personal perception into the text, and I, and I do it injustice. I abuse the text by forcing that presumption upon it. Okay, and people do this. They do it all the time. Again, some of them naively. Second Peter 3.16 says this. As also in all his, now I want to say real quick, I love Second Peter. Uh, uh, Pastor Sam brought Second Peter up. Second Peter is a wonderful book that teaches us how to Avoid false teaching, but, but understand how to have good teaching and how to understand and study the Bible for what it actually says. And I love this passage especially. Second Peter 3.16 says, As also in all his epistles, speaking, and he's speaking of Paul, by the way, okay in, these, in, these, uh, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, now, this word rest means which, uh, to twist or to distort, to distort or twist what the text says, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction, is what it says. In other words, when a passage is hard, we don't get to explain it away or invent our own interpretation, okay? When something is difficult, we don't get to just, you know, come up with something quick, or convenient, and just fill in the gap and move along. Because that's a dangerous thing to do. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, you don't get to have a private interpretation, a personal interpretation of the Word of God. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, our our context is the resurrection of the dead. The teaching that Jesus uh, uh, rose from the dead, that that those that believe on him will one day get to partake in that resurrection from the dead. And understanding that context helps us us to uh, understand these verses and the progression of thought. Number four, fourth principle, final principle for today. There are many principles. How many principles do you teach, Eric, and Foundations three, uh, it's a total, of 18. total of eighteen principles. Okay, we're gonna talk. We're just talking about four, and these four are the ones that apply specifically to what we're looking at today. So, principle number four is this principle of comparing scripture with scripture. And this this principle is really important, okay, because we believe that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself, right? Not something that some talking head or scholar. Uh, says about it. There are many very lots of skeptical and well studied men with, with lots of doctorates and letters behind their name that have lots of things to say about the Bible. And again, many of those men and women are coming to the text with lots of presuppositions, and some of them are faithless. So, how do we derive truth? Well, we compare scripture with scripture because we believe that scripture should be allowed to define itself. It should define itself. First Corinthians two thirteen says, "Which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but with the Holy Ghost, uh, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual." Now we addressed this early on in the study of of Corinthians. Uh, the idea that the Word of God creates a matrix. Remember, we talked about the matrix that functions as a screen to let. to to, to decipher between mistruths and truths. So if we take uh, Scripture by comparing spiritual things with spiritual things, we establish a, a, a working framework that keeps mistruths at bay but allows truths within, all right? Okay, so because we believe God wrote the Bible, we're confident in its consistency, right? It's only because we believe God wrote the Bible and not men that we can have this position, If we believe that various men through different times over a 1500 year period from different places all over the Middle East and and, and abroad were writing different things about God, well we would believe that the Bible itself contradicts itself, right? We would believe that it would contain contradictions, but we don't believe that. We believe it's a divine text and we believe it was written by God and so we can very comfortably say That when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we discover all the truths that God has for us. Now, here's our key point, and it's a doozy. It's a long one, so get ready. I don't don't often like to have long key points, but we're going to walk through this one because I think it's that important. Here's our first key point for the day. Our understanding of the Bible must be based on principle. Now, hold on, I want to pause there for just a second. When I say principle, I mean rules that the text itself demands. Okay? The text itself demands that we divide it, that it be divided. And, 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 the, and the Bible tells us that we study the Bible to show ourselves approved as workmen, rightly dividing the word of truth. And when we do that, when we do it properly, then we don't stand ashamed before the Lord. Now, the problem is that people will stand ashamed before the Lord because they have not rightly divided it. They've wrongly divided it. And so we use principles of Bible study that are derived from the Bible itself. All the principles we just talked about are all principles that the Word of God demands of itself if it's true and divine. Now, it must be done with precision. See, the word is to be divided, okay? The word of God itself is a dividing tool, is it not? It divides us up, right? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it has the ability to cut us and divide us. But it only works that way if we divide it appropriately. And so we must come to it with precision. And so we have to understand that the Bible must be based on principle. Our understanding of the Bible must be based on principle and precision, Not partisanship. What do I mean by partisanship? Partisanship partisanship is that tendency we have to be tribal in our perspective of things. And how we make alignment in our beliefs based on institutional ideologies. Right? And so, you know, all of us, uh, we have tribes. This is, in fact, a tribe of people that hold to certain perspectives of the Word of God. At another church, they might have another view. They might take a, a different approach to studying the Bible. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, God's Word transcends all of that. Okay? It's our job to come to it with a sense of, of, of a desire to pull literality from the text. And we're as literal with it as possible until, until it tells us that we can't be. You understand? We take it as literal as we can until the Bible itself tells us that we can't take this literal until allegory demands itself. Understood? So we, we don't get to just say, well, you know, uh, you know, MBT approaches the Bible this way, so so do I, I guess. Okay? And we don't get to say, well, I was taught this as a kid, and so that's what I believe. Or, okay, we've got to be real careful. The Word of God transcends all of that. Our desire has to be to come to it without those kinds of presuppositions. And so that leads us to the next thing. We need to be careful not to come to it with personal perceptions. In other words, personal presumptions. And when we have personal presumptions, that means that we're unaccountable. When we have private interpretations of the Bible, it means that we aren't studying it with the accountability of the saints in mind. See, I need you in my life to keep me accountable to studying the word of God rightly. Because if I get up here next week and I, I flip the script or I, I approach the word of God in a way that's, that is abusive to the text or rests the scriptures, I need you to say, no, 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 um, Brandon, uh, that's the wrong approach. You've, you've, you have taught the wrong teaching because you've misapplied what the Word of God says. We need one another in our lives if we're going to study the Bible the right way. You give a a man a Bible and you put him on an island by himself, uh, that's the quickest way to make a heretic. And so you have people who take the Bible and they go away to their little dungeon, you know, down in the basement. And they, you know, and they chart and they graph and they and they, they, they draw a line over here, and they draw a line here, and, and they YouTube, you know, as many conspiratorial theories as they can, their mind can handle. And then they come to the Bible, and they beat it all around, and they, they make it what they want it to be. And they don't do it with any accountability. You get to become your own God when you do stuff like that. Be very careful, and so... That's our first key point. So when considering verse 29, let's pull it back into the passage. So when considering verse 29, okay? I think it's in the next slide if you need to look at it. We may read it and study it and still have a lot of of maybe unresolved questions about it. There might be some things after studying this that we don't quite understand historically uh, about this phrase, baptism for the dead, Um, but because of a proper approach to Bible study, we can be darn sure of what it doesn't say. (laughs) You understand? We can be very, very confident in what this is not saying. So, let's, let's address that, shall we? This verse does not mean that you, as a believer, can be baptized for the salvation of someone who's already died. Because upon first reading, and without any context, and without any consideration for the passage, someone might derive that conclusion. Baptism for the dead is a curious phrase. Now, I wanna make it very clear that this is actually what the Mormons do. M- Mormons will actually be baptized for someone that they believe is, was not saved according to the Mormon faith. And so what they do, in fact, 1 Corinthians 15 is a favorite of Mormons, and we'll talk more about that later. But, but what, what they're doing is that the Mormons be- believe that, that if a, a person saved into the Mormon church, is baptized for a dead person, then what that does is it gains favor before God and it draws them up. They believe in tiers of heaven. It draws them up out of the lowest tier of heaven. Okay, so that's not what it says. That's not what it says. Now let me tell you why. Um, We can be confident in our position because if that was a valid doctrine it would also contradict all the biblical teaching on salvation that we have. (laughs) Okay? And and here's reason number one, because baptism does not save you. First of all, baptism itself doesn't save you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is a gift of grace, and it's received, not earned. It's not earned, whether it be by spiritual behavior or religious activity that you do. Uh, That is not how you come into the faith. When Christ extended a pardon for sin, he didn't say we needed to be baptized or do any good work to gain that pardon. Did he? We simply need to have faith in the work that he did. See, he did it all. I mean, we've been talking about this when we've been talking about the resurrection. Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that you deserve. And then he rose again to defeat death. He did that all for you so that you wouldn't have to do anything but receive that gift. So it's an issue of faith. Salvation is an issue of faith, not the things that you do. And so so baptism doesn't save you. Faith in what Christ did saves you. Because if you could do something to earn God's favor, well, then when you get to heaven, you'd get to brag about it. And there won't be any braggarts in heaven. None of us deserved it. We, we gained it by the grace of God. Romans 4, 5 says this. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Not the one that, w- that works for their salvation, but the one that believes and is justified through God, that is the one that gains righteousness. So while there are seven unique baptisms in Scripture for which we will not get into in this in this teaching today. Okay, there are seven unique types of baptisms in the Bible. The baptism of the church age is intended to be a figure or a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We often refer to this as believer's baptism. Maybe you've heard that phrase before because it's for, specifically for people who already are saved. It's the believer's baptism. And the intention of believer's baptism is to openly illustrate the gift of salvation. The gift, the gift of the death, burial, and resurrection that we have already received. So one is not saved through the work of baptism, but by faith. And so that's the first thing we need to understand. Baptism doesn't save you, and so the natural implication of that is that your baptism can't save you, and so you can't be baptized on behalf of others To save them. That's a very simple and natural contextual conclusion. If the whole of the New Testament tells you that it's by faith in the finished work of Christ that one is saved, then we can know that baptism doesn't save us, and so it can't save those that have gone before us. So in other words, many people, Mormons in particular, want to imply that this passage teaches that someone can be baptized in water as an act to deliver them from judgment. But obviously that can't be true by deduction because the Bible never teaches that baptism saves anyone. That's simple biblical logic. But further than that, reason number three, this is the only time that this language, baptism for the dead, is ever even used. So it's an outlying statement. It's a a question specifically that exists in contradiction to the entirety of the doctrine of salvation that Paul himself lays forth. So then the question becomes, well, what the heck is Paul saying then? We know what he's not saying, but what is he saying? Are you guys hanging with me still? I mean, we're studying, studying today. We're not just studying. We're like studying, studying. So I need you to be with me, okay? So what is Paul saying? If you were to simply go uh, by, by what the Bible commentaries say, you are going to get a million different perspectives on this thing. And uh, a lot of those commentaries just refuse simple Bible exegesis anyway. So, so be, a, be, a, be careful about what commentaries you're picking up. But there are a couple different legitimate biblical interpretations that we will briefly cover here, okay? So keep in mind that what drives the different interpretations is how to understand the word for. That word for is very critical. So obviously in contemporary English, we have lots of usages of the word for. And while I'm looking at Melissa, I'm going to go ahead and point out that we are adding an LFBI, we are adding a class on English grammar and its relationship to the King James Bible. So LFBI uh, in the spring of 2024 will have an English grammar class. And so... For those of you who are completely clueless right now, there is hope for you, okay? Now, in, in Scripture, the word for also has many different usages. Just, just like it does in our contemporary English, in the Bible, the word for is used many different ways. So when we come across the word, words like this that are ambiguous, then we have to use Bible study principles to make sense of it. In this case, we must establish the context of the passage in order to determine the usage. And there are a couple of valid conclusions that we might draw. Now the first one is this. Reading number one. Reading number one. You with me? <laughs> I know you're trying, bro. So I appreciate that. Reading number one is this. That, it's, that the word for could be understood as because of. Okay, So there are some who would say that the context is referring to those saints who have died and will one day rise again. Okay, so baptism because of the dead. So, so the, the word for, the usage, is equivalent to, to the use of because of. And so you might read the passage like this, verse 29. Else what shall they, they do which are baptized because of the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Now in that case, uh, people are coming To Christ and getting baptized because of the testimony of the saints that have gone before them. In other words, we're reading this and we're saying to ourselves that in Corinth, people were coming to Christ because of the testimony of the saints that had gone before them. Now you know in this time period, there were many people that were giving their life for the cause of Christ, right? And the church in Corinth were bearing witness to all of the saints that that were laying down their life because of what they believed. They were being persecuted and killed. And there were believers that, that went before them that laid their lives down. And when they look back and they, they could name the names of people who, who gave their life for the cause, they can say, that was powerful in my life. And, and so I'm, I, I'm baptized because of the dead. Now, this is a fair reading because it doesn't actually abuse Scripture to believe this. But I don't think it's the most accurate reading. I don't think it's the simplest conclusion. I think the simplest conclusion is this one. Number two, that baptism is a picture. It's a picture. And we need to understand it as a picture. I think the simpler understanding focuses on what this baptism question points to. Specifically, whether or not the, the picture of baptism is, is legitimate. Okay, this is going to make more sense in a second, all right? So when you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you, you became dead to your flesh. You, you died that day. The, the part of you that was a sinner, corrupt, blemished because of sin, it died. And in a very real sense, you, were, you're, you became resurrected in your spirit unto the Lord. You're dead to sin and alive to Christ. The old man is dead. The new man is alive. And this picture of water immersion baptism is intended to display that reality. Okay, now here's the deal. In the first century in Corinth, they would have only known one baptism. You understand? And that's a baptism of immersion. Into the water, fully immersed into the water. There was none of the sprinkling and uh, you know the, the christening and... That's not what they were doing, okay? The word baptism itself means immersion. And so in the first century church, they were going down to the water, and because, of a person, because a person professed Christ, they publicly dunked them into the water and brought them back out. Why? Because it's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done in our lives. Now, today, we got to watch as Matt, I mean, it's perfect timing, right? Matt and Claire got baptized today in first service, and when they stood on stage, and we were conversing, it was very important for all of us to affirm that they had put their faith in Jesus Christ, and and in Matt's case and Claire's case, it was from a very early age that they, they believed on Christ. They repented of their sin, and Claire had this moment of agnosticism, and Matt had this moment of doubt, and... And and they had difficulties in their faith, but nonetheless, there was a moment in time in which they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe they had to come back to faith again, but you're saved in a moment, just like you're born in a moment. Now, that pictures for us the death, burial, and resurrection within their lives, the spiritual work that God did. Now remember the whole chapter of of 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul convincing the Corinthians that all believers will be resurrected unto Christ one day. Okay, that they'll be resur- will be resurrected one day. And and we also need to keep in mind Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, the like as Christ was raised up from the dead by by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This is speaking of our salvation. This is speaking of our salvation. But the, the baptism of water, like that dunking, in, you know, we do use the horse trough because we're a humble people. And so we use a horse trough. The water is nice and warm. Was it not? It was nice and warm, wasn't it? Very warm. Very warm indeed. Okay? Now, you can imagine, you can imagine if there was no resurrection from the dead, if if the church in Corinth was right, that we would not be raised from the dead one day, that it would destroy the picture of baptism that the church was participating in. So it would look like this. Matthew goes into the water. Some, Some few bubbles come up. Then he would stay there. And then, and then Claire would come, and she would, right there, buried right there with her husband. And she'd go down, glug, 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 and then it's done. And so here, here's, the, here's the issue. Here's the issue, and I think this is the purest reading of the text. This is the purest way to understand what's being said. Baptism for the dead is a declaration of personal death and by implication, the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of, of our newness of life. If baptism signifies the death and resurrection of the saints, then what good is that picture if there is no resurrection? So if the resurrection for, of our bodies from, from the grave if the, if the newness of our bodies and the, uh, 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 an eternal life, body, soul, and spirit with, with the Lord, is not real, then what good is all this dunk and pull out business? Like, what good is that picture if the resurrection isn't real? And so now we can simply understand in context what this passage means and says. Our belief in the resurrection goes as far as even our practice as baptism, in baptism. It's a critical component of what we do. So here's the key point. Being dead to sin is nothing without being raised to newness of life. Being dead to your sin is actually nothing. Like, what good is it to be forgiven of all your sin if consequentially you don't also get to spend eternity with Jesus, the one who did that for you. I mean, is it not the preoccupying thought of every faithful believer that one day we get to see Christ face to face? That at some level that this reality is just a a glass darkly but one day we will, be, we will get to stand in, in perfect form before our Savior and know Him. I mean, forgiveness of sin is, is good, but it means nothing if we remain in the grave. In Corinth, they were struggling with the belief that the believers would not be resurrected, which led them Focusing their attention on the religion of Christianity, not the relationship of Christianity. So, all the activity that, that should be rooted in faith has become dead and ritualistic. Without the resurrection, everything that we do is nothing more than ritual and religion. Paul points this out, you know, um, by saying, like, what difference does, the, does baptism make? If there's no power in it, the resurrection part, that's the power part. And if there's no power in it, what good is it? See, their Christianity was dead and buried, but it didn't have the power of new life. Let me remind you of of something really important, and I think this this is necessary for us to hear, Kaya. We're a very busy group of people, are we not? But here's the deal. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there's no point to being here this morning. There's no point to being here. See, you can go and worship just about anywhere. You can worship at the feet of whatever is streaming. You can go and worship. I mean, some of you would be bougie enough to go be at brunch right now but that's what you'd be doing. You'd be going with mimosas and doing the... Why, 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 why be here when you could be at brunch worshiping there? Right? You can, you can go worship your career, your bank account. You can go worship your family and friends. You can go worship the next vacation so that you can document it for Instagram so everyone can believe you're cool. You can go and worship your sexual identity you can go worship your race, race or your social uh, status or class, and you can go worship your political ideology. Go do that, because this is meaningless. This is empty. It's vain without the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then it's all subjective, and you can practice whatever your favorite rituals are in your free time and however you choose. But the opposite truth, the adverse truth, is this. If Jesus rose again, then engaging him with everything that you have, with all of your faith, is absolutely critical. And it affects everything. If Jesus rose from the dead, it affects absolutely everything. Listen as Paul explains this very thing in verse 30. He's talking about Christians. He's like, if baptism just pictures the death of Christ and there is no resurrection, if we don't have the hope of a resurrection, then why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Why would believers put their lives at risk all the time? Why would they do that? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Why would, why would I bother crucifying my flesh, mortifying my flesh? If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me? And so we're not going to get into that. But, but what it comes down to is that in Ephesus, Paul clearly risked his whole life by going against the beasts of, that, that were in Ephesus. Why would he do that if the dead rise not? I mean, if the dead rise not, let us eat, and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. I mean, this is a warning right here that they've sown seeds of division within their own congregation by sitting around and and, and postulating that there's no resurrection that has done damage. Evil communication corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Here's our key point. Sacrifice. The sacrifice of ministry. Your time, your resources, your energy, your Bible study, your love for other people. Taking the time to to go meet with friends and and family members and share the gospel and to, to devote your life to what this is. All of that sacrifice is only significant if there's a future resurrection. I mean, let's be real honest. What kind of person would I be if I stood in front of you every single week and I said, hey, you gotta go deeper. Hey, you know what? You should go to Bible study. Hey, you know what? You should stop thinking so much about your career and you should focus more on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ if I stood up here and I said things like, you know what, uh, the Bible teaches us and instructs us that we should give of our finances to the church and you should, you should give as the Lord has given to you, you should give your money to serve into the mission. What kind of person would it be if I was asking you to go all in on the mission of Jesus Christ if there was no resurrection? I mean, I I would be a wicked person. Paul says, without a promise to defeat death, then we should all just eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. In other words, just live your best life. Get everything you want out of it because pleasure is the only virtue. But if Christ did rise from the dead, that changes everything. Now let's get back to this question that we asked at the very beginning. What does it mean to be religious? What does it mean to be religious? Well, being religious or or, or having religion simply means that you do something with devotion and consistency. Right? That's all that it means. That's what it means in Scripture, and that's what it means Really, even today, even though we twist it and use it in many different contexts, religion is ultimately our devotion and consistency to something. And so, what we do in many ways is religion. I'm devoted to this work and I do it with consistency, it's habitual for me. But here's the deal religion for religion's sake is a trap, it's a trap. All of this just for the sake of doing it would be bondage. It would be a trap. And some of you, some of you convert what should be a work of faith into a false religion. That's what you do because because you don't do it in faith. You don't do it in the power of the resurrection. You do it in your flesh and you're just like the Corinthians who are are going about doing stuff but with no real hope. Religion born out of righteousness. Religion that's bestowed upon us. Well, that's freedom. Verse 34 says, Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. See, religion can't replace the relationship that we have in Jesus Christ through the resurrection. It can't. Now, I just want to speak very frank with you. I know that there are people in this room that call themselves Christians that have no daily walk with Jesus Christ. You know, think about this from Christ's perspective. Everything that he gave, his, his life, his love for you, laying it down, the resurrection, the, the future that's ahead of us, all of the work, the heaven, heavenly realms, the things that he's prepared for us, You know, he's given a lot. But you know that he wants a relationship with you now, right? He wants to know you now. And every day that you wake up and you perform religious activities or rituals that feel spiritual, you do ministry, but it's hollow and empty. It's a living mockery to what he's done. See, all of that work, according to James, all of that work that you do for God should come out of faith in him. It's born from faith. It's born from relationship with him. So the question for us today is do we do religion vainly Or do we do religion because of our relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you have a daily walk with the Lord? Are you intimate with him? Do you you call him friend the way he calls you friend? The scriptures are telling us awake to righteousness because of the gift of God. Some of you are living like when you were baptized, you never came back out of the water. And we can't afford to live that way. We can't. You can't afford to live that way. And we can't can't afford to be a church that lives that way. Relationship with Christ is critical. And so here's the invitation. I want to go ahead and invite David up. Here's the invitation for us today. There are people in the room today that don't know Christ as their Savior. You've never experienced what it means to repent from your sin and trust on the Lord as your personal Savior. Some of you have never entered into relationship with God. And so today, today is an opportunity for you to receive him for the very first time. To take his gift for what it is. You don't do anything to earn it. There's no ritual, there's no sacrament that we're going to make you do that makes you right with God. It's got to be a decision of faith. Because of what he's done for you. And if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, certainly there are people in the room this morning that don't. I want to plead with you to come forward and figure out what it means to know Christ. There'll be people that are standing right up here that you can meet with. Just come forward and grab one of them, and they'll be glad to to talk to you about this. But there are also just, you know, even more than that. There are there are many of you in the room that call yourself Christian and you've received the gift of salvation. But you walk around and you do ministry and you do life without meaning. And coming here this morning was just an act of religion for you. It was just ritual. You know, last Sunday, you know, I preached a sermon and there were a lot of people in here praying and making decisions, praise God. I heard, I got text messages from people saying, Pastor Brandon, that sermon meant a lot to me. Praise the Lord. But how is it that so many of you are only surviving on what you get from Sunday to Sunday. Oh, that was so refreshing. <gasps> You're coming up for air, but then the rest of the week, where is Christ? Where is He? You act like you don't even know Him. Like if you passed Him on the street, you wouldn't even know Him. On Sunday, you do, but, what, but the rest of the week. So here's the issue. Some of us are religious, and we're religious in vain. And we need to to correct that before the Lord this morning. And So if that's you, I invite you, grab a hold of someone and and say, hey, I've I've been acting like a Christian in vain. I've been doing all the ritual and religion, but there's no life. I want the life. I want the power of the resurrection to be real in my life. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for helping us uh, as we navigate what's a kind of a difficult passage. Lord, I pray people learn something uh, from your word today. But Lord, most importantly, uh, I pray that, that whatever learning we gained, that it would produce faith and uh, behavioral change. That people would, this morning, uh, have greater faith. And, and, and if they need to make a decision, they, they need to renew their faith, that they would do that. And that they would come forward or grab a hold of someone and they'd get the prayer that they need and they would begin to, to recognize who you really are to them. Lord, if there are people who aren't saved, they don't know you, Lord, I pray that, that they would come to see you for the very first time and that the blinders would fall and that they would have faith. Help us, God. We're trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in His Word. For more information about Kaya, for service times, and information about our disciple making ministry, please visit our website at caya.lib.